For you have been born again of perishable, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. It's what Peter says later on in chapter 1, in verse 23. What does Peter say is the cause of new birth? Imperishable seed, the word of God. Now, my father considers himself a failure in the sense that he as a father has failed to pass on to me that which he is passionate about. My father is passionate about gardening. He loves it. He loves it so much I can remember growing up, him gardening in the afternoon when he'd get home from work. He was gardening uh, all the weekend. He loved gardening and he still loves it today. He doesn't like Costa from Gardening Australia, though. He thinks that Costa uh, needs a good haircut. Um, he also doesn't like, uh, he doesn't like jazz music because he says that's undisciplined and thinks that barbecue sauce is spicy. There's some things my dad does not like, but he really loves gardening. And I now can appreciate his love. I love actually walking with him in his garden And when we walk through his garden, I like to ask him what the different plants and flowers are. I say, Dad, what's what's this one? And he'll say, Stuart, that's a lemon tree. I say, right, thanks, Dad. And the pain of his failure, like a dagger, with every question. I do it now just to scandalise him. My father tried to teach me, though. He tried to enthuse me with gardening. I can remember planting some old seeds. They were contained in this jam jar had this rusty lid and I think my grandfather, my mum's dad had given them to my father and there as we were planting them I was thinking to myself with all my 12 year old wisdom dad don't you know that these seeds have gone off I was later to find out in high school that uh, apparently they've found seeds in Egyptian tombs that are uh, literally thousands of years old and they've planted them And guess what? Those seeds have sprouted. Because that's what's amazing about a seed. It has this potential for life. It has the power of life in it, even an ancient seed. And contained within these words, within these phrases, within these sentences that we have here in 1 Peter, we are being told about God's word, which has the power of life in it, the imperishable seed. A power to transform from the inside out. And it is a power. I was reminded of the power of just a small seed. Yesterday I was riding the bike with the kids through Urala Estate. And there you see these quite um, thick concrete slabs reinforced with steel. And there those concrete slabs are broken in two. By what? By what was once just a seed. And now it's become a large tree and a root. A seed may be small, but it's incredibly powerful. And that's our second point there in the, in the introduction, a penetrating power. Because in general, the seed, for it to be uh, powerful, has to get underneath the surface. It has to go down deep. It can't just lay or stay on the shelf. Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 is speaking to religious leaders and famously he says to them you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God now he's talking to these religious leaders and in one sense they did know the scriptures they've been schooled in the scriptures from whenever they could speak or even before 
And Jesus looks at these people who could quote probably most of them large sections of the Old Testament, and he says to them, you don't know the Scriptures. And notice that he adds something. He says, you don't know the Scriptures or nor the power of God. In other words, this word that they knew had never come in. It sat on the shelf. It has to come on the inside. You can't leave it on the shelf of your mind. It's got to be planted in the soil of your heart. So the second thing we learn is that the Word of God is not... It, it's not just that we need a familiarity with it. Um, it's not simply that we need to know the data of the Word of God, like a scientist. But we need to have the Word of God penetrate. And that is what's necessary for new birth. Thirdly, you'll see there that I've said that the Word of God is a subtle power. Because how do you plant a seed? You don't plant a seed with a crowbar. You plant a seed. You know, you get that special seedling mix. And it's actually kind of fluffy and soft, that kind of seedling soil, isn't it, Domo? And what you do is you so gently put your finger in and then you cover it over so gently as well. It's a gentle, subtle process to plant a seed. And what's interesting is as, as you plant that seed, just moments after, nothing happens. And yet, now with the seed in the soil and with the water on top, that seed now has life-giving power. It's actually starting to be tapped, this power, even though you don't quite know it yet. That barren plot is now, perhaps, to become a forest. See, on the one hand, becoming a Christian is a definite event. It's new birth. You move from light, from darkness to light. And, and so it, you're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. It's a definite event. But in another sense, more often than not, when people become Christians, it's not always a conscious moment. You know, you can look back, perhaps if you have become a Christian, it, sometimes it is very hard to know when you actually became a Christian. This is the experience of many people becoming Christians. For example, a man like Professor Ian Harper. Professor Ian Harper is one of the leading economists in Australia. And he became a Christian and here's how he became a Christian. His wife dragged him along to a very normal, small Anglican church, pretty similar to this one. And there he remembers when he first was dragged there by his wife, he thought, this is ridiculous. I can't believe people believe this message. And there, because his wife wanted him to, he kept on coming each Sunday after Sunday. Years he sat there thinking it was ridiculous. But then he, just before he took communion, one day he became a Christian. He believed this message that he first thought was ridiculous. So he didn't remember when the seed went in, but the seed went in. And he was brought to new life. You see, it's not enough to know the Bible. It's not enough to know the Bible or know the facts of the Bible like data. Perhaps like coming to church, you know, you just you top up your knowledge. Going to Bible study, it's like a, a bit of a test just to how much you know. That's not what Peter is talking about here. The Word of God has to penetrate. It has to go deep in our hearts. 
And how does this happen? Well, this is what this section of 1 Peter is all about. Because the answer to how does the Word of God penetrate is, well, it's seen in these two things. Firstly, you need to know the story. And secondly, you need to know the hero of the story. That's what we're going to see this afternoon. Because Peter so far has shown these Christians, well, well, he's begun at ground zero, new birth, them coming to life. We saw that in verses 3 to 5. He showed them their heavenly inheritance last week. He brought them back to earth in verses 6 to 9 with the reality of suffering, as we saw last week. And he showed them the goal of their salvation there in verse 8, if you want to open up. And we saw last week so profoundly of how our future, not our past, our future defines who we are now that we can be filled remarkably. There's no way I could have said this if it wasn't in the Scriptures, but we can be filled, Peter is saying, verse 8, with the joy of heaven now, in the middle of suffering. And today, in verses 10 to 12, just three verses, only three, you might be thankful for, we're going to see that the past has anticipated This moment that Christians are in now. The past has anticipated the moment that Christians are in now because Peter conceives of history as a wave. And it's not just history, it's the history of what God has been doing in the world and it's been slowly growing, like a wave coming into the shore, building and building and building. And this wave has risen, but... Now as this wave has crashed, it's not that the Christians are surfing this wave. No, these Christians that Peter is writing to, as we saw last week, are suffering and are going to suffer worse than they've already experienced. They're getting pounded in the wash. They're getting sucked under in this wave, not knowing which way is up. And so what does Peter want to do? He wants to show them. He wants to show them the right way up as they're being turned and over and over again. And how does he do it? In three ways. It's there in the outline. He says, listen to the prophets, listen to preachers, and look at what the angels are doing. So firstly, encouragement from the prophets, verses 10 and 11. How does the word of God penetrate our hearts? What's there in verse 10? Why don't you have a look? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest of care. See, Peter's first point is that we need to listen to the prophets. Why? Because they spoke about the grace that was to come. You see, Christianity is not, or was not, a new religion in the first century. The Old Testament prophets knew that there would be a time when God would bring his king before the world, where he would rescue through this Christ, this king, this saviour. In fact, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. In John chapter 8, verse 56. We need to listen to the prophets because they're bringing this word of grace. You notice it's a word of grace here. It's not one of what you have to do, but it's one of what Christ has done. In fact, that's the gospel. It's an event. 
It's the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's him coming in suffering, and it's him rising in glory. That's the gospel. The gospel is something that, of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus, that our sins are forgiven, that death has been broken, that he died in your place, that he rose again in triumph over the grave. That's the gospel, and that's what these prophets were, were searching for. That's what we know now, but these Old Testament prophets didn't know it the way we know it. What we know in full, they just knew in part. And that's why they were searching, because they didn't know. You only search for something when you can't find it, right? I'm always searching for my keys and wallet, trying to blame the kids, but Mandy always tells me it's me that's left my keys and my wallet where they're not supposed to be. But they were, they were searching, because they didn't know what we know. They knew that there was a story. They knew that there was something to be found, but they didn't know the hero. See, the prophets were Israel's office holders. It started with Moses. The institution of the prophets is spoken about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. God's people have reached Sinai. They've been rescued out of Exodus, and God spoke to them, but the people, when they were on the mountain hearing God speak, were so scared that they asked Moses to speak to them Instead, and so God granted them their request and instituted the office of prophet, someone who goes into God's presence to come there and speak the word of God in the presence of people. That's a prophet. And these prophets, as God has given them, as they've been in the presence of God remarkably, they didn't know what you know. Because they studied, they searched intently, they poured hard and long. And even they're frustrated with what they don't know as much as what they do know. Jeremiah says to God, how long? How long are you going to keep me in the dark? And God says to Jeremiah, it's sealed for the end of time. Habakkuk, in our Old Testament reading in chapter 2 he can't understand what God is doing. He says this in chapter 2, verse 3, for the revelation, this is God speaking to Habakkuk, for the revelation awaits an appointed time, it speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. You see, the prophets, they knew that there was a story. They were searching, but they hadn't found the hero. They didn't know the hero and, perhaps more remarkably, they didn't know the kind of hero that this Messiah would be. Because have a look at verse 11. Peter says, Trying to find out the time and circumstances is their search to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That's a tricky sentence there, isn't it? It's quite convoluted, but here I think simply is what verse 11 is saying. They wanted to know the who, what, when, why of what God was going to do. But they didn't. They didn't know most significantly who this hero is or what kind of hero he would be because what kind of hero would he be? Verse 11, what would he do? Suffer. That's a pathetic hero. That's not the hero that we would expect. That's certainly not the hero that the Old Testament prophets expected. That's not even the hero that Peter himself 
expected. One day, Peter was with Jesus. He confesses that Jesus is this promised Messiah, this Christ. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says, Yes, you're right, Peter. I'm though going to suffer and die, but on the third day I will rise again. And Peter can't believe this. He rebukes Jesus. Because no hero suffers. But this is not a mistake. In Jesus' mind, his suffering is the necessity. It's not the mistake. The prophets were given particular insight into the fact that God was sending a Messiah and to some extent the nature of the Messiah, but they didn't understand fully what it would mean. They didn't understand fully what it would mean that God would send a suffering Messiah. This was certainly unacceptable to a first century Jew. And yet now here as Peter writes to these Christians, what are they experiencing? Suffering. And so do you see what Peter's doing? He's connecting who Jesus is, who the hero of the story is, with their experience. Because they are experiencing in parallel what the one who has saved them had experienced. They're saved by this kind of Messiah, a suffering Messiah. And Peter points to this to say that their life mirrors that of the Messiah's. Last week we dealt with the reality of suffering. But the reality of suffering is not something that Christians only experience. Everyone experiences suffering. But the thing that always catches me off guard, and the thing I think most Christians is, the Bible doesn't just speak about the reality of suffering, although it does. The Bible encourages the Christian in the middle of suffering again and again and again, to rejoice in suffering. And so when you hear that suffering is a reality, it's a reality for the Christian, and you know, perhaps, you know, on the logic of, you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, uh, you might think, yes, I can get through it. But this is not what Peter is encouraging, nor what the Scriptures encourage Christians just to kind of grin and bear it. The reality is that the scriptures encourage us to rejoice in suffering and trials. And you might not feel like that. I don't automatically feel like that when suffering kind of comes upon me. I don't know many people who do. But what's my mistake? What's our mistake? Well, our mistake is that we do not know the story. And we do not know the hero. Because according to Peter, all the Old Testament is about Christ's suffering and his glory. Someone might say, well, that's not quite right, Stu. You've overstated that. That's typical of a preacher. Overstate. It's a little more nuanced than that. No, it's not. The Old Testament is all about the suffering and the glory of Christ. Well, okay, what about the prophecies? Well, the prophecies in the Old Testament are all about Christ. We're told in Genesis 3 that God will raise a redeemer, from humanity, we're told in Isaiah chapter 9 that this rescuer will be God Almighty. We're told in Isaiah 7 that he will be 
God. We're told in Isaiah 53 that he'll suffer and be killed. We're told in Psalm 16 that he will rise again. Your Holy One will not see corruption. And you go through the prophecies and you know that they're all about Jesus. But I didn't say that simply the prophecies are all about Jesus. I said that the whole Old Testament is all about Christ's suffering and his glory. Well, what about, come on, Stu, what about Leviticus? You know, all that stuff about sacrifices, blood, tabernacles, tents. Yeah, that's all about Jesus. Jesus was the sacrifice the Old Testament was pointing to. Jesus was the bread on the altar. Jesus was the lamp in the holy place. Jesus is the temple where people meet God. Someone says, well, okay, what about the law? Come on, what a, you know, the law's not about Jesus, his suffering and his glory. The law is all about Jesus. When you read the Ten Commandments, when you look at the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, it's all pointing to Jesus because it's teaching us how to read the Bible. It's teaching us how to read the Bible through the suffering and the glory of Christ because, first of all, the law is telling us about the moral excellence of the Lord Jesus, about our moral corruption and his moral excellence, what he has done. You see, he did this for us. He fulfilled all the Old Testament law for us. All of the moral perfection of Jesus is given to us because he is the only one that loved the Lord our God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. He is the only one who ever loved his neighbour as he loves himself perfectly. And so he fulfilled all of the Old Testament law. And so when he fulfills it, all of his righteousness becomes our righteousness. Do we read the law like that? But it's not just the law. I said the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. The history of Israel is all about Jesus. Jesus was the true prophet. Jesus was the true priest. Jesus was the true king. All the history of the prophets, priests and kings point us to Jesus. I know you know that. But it's more than that. It's not just simply those officers. It's the history of Israel that points us to Jesus. God, out of all the nations, chose Israel to be what? To be his special people, his treasured possession. He says to that nation, I want you to be faithful, to follow my commandments. And they didn't. You remember how many tribes they started off with? They started off with 12. They split in two. There were 10 up north, two down south. And those 10 tribes up north were lost because of their disobedience, were left at a point in the Old Testament with just one tribe, Judah. And Judah says to God, yes, God, we'll keep the covenant. We'll obey you, but they didn't. And so God deported them to exile in Babylon. And those who come back from Babylon, the remnant, the faithful remnant, the best of the best, they say to God, yes, God, we'll keep your covenant. And by the time Jesus is born... Do you know how many faithful there are left in Israel? Do you know how small that remnant is? There is only one who is truly faithful left in Israel. The book of Hosea says that when the Israelites were called out of Egypt, when God led them out under Moses, Hosea says, out of Egypt I call my son. 
and in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew applies it to Jesus because Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the only one who has fulfilled the covenant. The whole Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the officers are all about the suffering and glory of the Lord Jesus. And this means that he alone inherits the blessings of the promise. He alone is the true Israel. All the center of Israel's history is about Jesus. The ceremonial laws, the tent, the tabernacle, the wisdom literature are all about the Lord Jesus. Do you know the story? And do you know the hero of the story? Do you read the Bible in that way, where Jesus is the hero, where it's all about his suffering and his glory? Because if you don't read the Bible in that way, and for, for, many, for, for much of Christian history, this has been a serious problem within Christianity, the way people have understood the Old Testament. And it's meant that the Old Testament has become a place where Christians don't want to go. It's just, you know, like the rocket boosters that get uh, the spaceship off. You know, it, it, was, it was necessary for a time, but we can discard them now that the ship's up in orbit. Mark Twain used to have nightmares about the Bible. You know, the American author? He used to have nightmares he used to dream these dreams where the Bible was this massive, weighty book that was placed on him and would crush his chest, breaking his bones, suffocating him so much that he couldn't breathe. And the Bible would be like that if the Bible was about us. The Old Testament was about us, but it's not. It's about the suffering and the glory of the Lord Jesus. And if we don't read, if we don't know the hero of the story, it will crush us like it crushed Mark Twain. And that's what is so remarkable about this next section. The whole of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Every moment in the history of Israel is preparing us for this time. This wave is growing and it crashes down in the reality of human existence in the first century, in the birth, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And yet that's why verse 12 is so remarkable. Have a look at verse 12. It was revealed to them. What was it? what God was doing was revealed to the prophets that they were not serving themselves, but who? Who were they serving? Who were they writing about thousands of years ago? Who was it about? Can you imagine, like, as this letter, I, this is what I've been thinking about this week, is being read out in the church, I can, you know, some, some person putting their hand up and stopping the reading, can you just, whoa, bro, back it up. Give us verse 12 again. They were not serving themselves, but you. And I wonder in that moment when they realized that the whole of what God was doing in the world, how Jesus had come and how they had recorded it in the scriptures, this was for their benefit, for the benefit of these Christians, this side of the cross. I wonder if any thought that God didn't care for them has now vanished, knowing 
that they are in such a privileged position, that they are part of something so great, that he has given them this reality. And it wasn't as though the prophets, this isn't to deny that the prophets were useful in their own age, they had a role, but their ministry is more useful to us. Calvin puts it this way, he says, they spread the table, that's the prophets, that others might afterwards feed on the provision laid on it. <laughs> that's great, isn't it? The prophets laid the table, and, he say, and Calvin's saying, and guess who gets to feast? We do. Because what was once prophesied is now preached. What was once promised is now fulfilled. What angels are, are wondering about, as we'll see in a moment, we now know. And that's why he encourages these Christians to keep hearing the word of God. Verse 12b, because that's how they heard it when it was preached to them. See, it wasn't as though they became Christians, just they're walking along and this brick falls from heaven. That's not how they became Christians. They heard the word of God spoken to them. They heard it read. They listened. They thought about it. They studied it. It has to be preached to you. And I'm not talking about just here on a Sunday. You don't need a crowd and a person. You just need the word of God. The word of God expounded to you, by you, for you, in you. You have to think about it. You have to read about it. It's not magic. It's not a brick that falls from heaven. It's a seed. It's a seed that needs to be planted deep within. And sometimes it doesn't feel like it's growing. You can't see it, but it needs to be planted deep within. And lastly, and this is where we end here, it's, this is not just a privilege of history. It's not that we're just uh, this side of the cross. This is a cosmic privilege. And this is his last point here. He says that what we know now that this wave has crashed what we know, angels long to look into these things at the end of verse 12 there. When it says long, the word there is uh, the word for passion. These angels are passionate about these truths. And literally, the word is also uh, connected with the idea of craning their necks. In fact, the same word is used for Mary as she, in John chapter 20, is peering into the tomb to see Jesus. You see what Peter's saying? These angels are craning their necks just to get a glimpse of what is happening here. They're peering because they do not experience what we experience. Do you know that Jesus died for you? Do you know the whole Old Testament is about his suffering and his glory? Angels long to look into that reality that you know. Because this salvation that you have, this is only the privilege of those humans that the Lord God has chosen. It is a high privilege. It's a privilege that angels can appreciate, but it's not a privilege that they can experience. It's a spectacle to them. And they long. They long to look into it. They long for what we know, for what we experience. The joy, verse 8, that we experience now, they long to experience that. We have to ask ourselves a question, is 
our salvation per se. Perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time. Put your hand up if you've been a Christian your whole life. Okay, all right. Many of us. Being Christian can become a bit per se, a bit faded, a bit worn out. And it often is something that we're not kind of passionate about anymore. You notice it says there at the end of verse 12 that the angels long. Notice the tense there. It's not that they did long and now they know what we know. No, they still do now. It's in the present tense. It says the angels even now are obsessed with the gospel. They're continually looking into it. They long to look into it. They gaze upon it the way you gaze upon the fire when you're out there camping, the way you gaze through a kaleidoscope, the way a beautiful person just captures your eye, the way I used to look at fireworks. I remember 1988, there on Sydney Harbour, the fireworks went up New Year's Eve. Amazing, so exciting. But now, for the fireworks, I find it hard to stay up. I find it hard to make it to 9pm. I wonder why they don't do it at 8pm, maybe 7.45 sometimes. Because I don't care about the fireworks anymore. I've seen so many, it's passe. Friends, may the reality of our salvation in Christ not be for us something passe, something that we once were excited about, something that for a time really excited us, but now it's a little faded. How do we not let it become faded? Well, we need to have this seed planted deep within. We need to know the gospel, but we need to know that the gospel is more than just mere information, mere data. Because the angels say, because we might say that the angels know the gospel. But the gospel is not just a body of information. It's a kaleidoscope of profound insight into what God has done within your life, what he's doing now and what he has promised you for the future. It is a multidimensional reality that we need to gaze upon. This word of God needs to be planted deep within our hearts so that we might gaze with those angels upon this reality, upon what God has been doing in history and what he'll be doing in eternity, upon his suffering for us and the glory to come. Amen.